Howdy, hola, welcome to Rising. We have an absolutely mind-shattering show for you here today. Not one, but two radars. That's right, you'll hear from both me and Brianna. Also some excellent guests, and you're just gonna love our show today. I can really feel it. Don't you think so? I, I'm inspired by you. I'm confident that it's gonna be a wonderful show because of that intro, Robbie. You're really I'm, bringing the heat today. I'm glad to hear it. Let's <laughs> take it away. All right, well, the United States seems to be marching closer to a full-on War with Iran, as reports indicate, Biden is planning a, quote, campaign in the region that could last weeks. NBC News reported that the campaign will hit Iranian targets outside of the country and will include both physical and digital attacks. Iran has warned that it will respond decisively to attacks on its territory or interests. Meanwhile, the blame game over who got us into the current situation with Iran continues. Former President Trump blames Biden's alleged appeasement of Tehran for the tension, while Biden blames Trump's unilateral killing of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani and the pullout from the Iran nuclear deal. However, when asked if he would strike Iran, Trump seemingly demurred. Let's take a look. President Biden said that he had already decided how he is going to respond to the attack on the uh, three Americans killed. If you were in the White House today, would you strike Iran directly? It wouldn't have happened if I were in the White House. You would have never had this attack. You would have never had the attack on Israel. You would have never had the attack on Ukraine. Uh, you would not have inflation that was, you know, just is destroying our country. The inflation is so bad. Also in Middle East news, the Biden administration is reportedly reviewing options for recognizing Palestinian statehood following the war in Gaza. If enacted, this would represent a massive shift in policy, as for decades, America has opposed external recognition of Palestine, preferring that Israel and the Palestinian Authority negotiate amongst themselves. Additionally, the Biden administration is facing a flurry of protests, including one happening as we speak in the nation's capital. Coordinated protests have shut down major highways into the city, causing massive traffic jams and issues with even government officials getting to work. And our own show, which was delayed <laughs> our start time a little bit because of the trouble that employees had getting I, into I don't, the I don't protests. think anybody will notice these particular government officials not getting to work on time, given that we just came out of one of the least productive Congresses, congressional sessions hey, of go. all time. All right. So it was interesting, finally, to hear from Trump a little bit on mm -hmm. the situation in the Middle East. Um, however, I think it's frustrating to not get more concrete answers for what he would do differently. He keeps saying, well, it wouldn't have happened under me. Okay, that's all well and good to say that, but uh, I, I do want to know, I really want to know what his policy differences would be. You can imagine um, the Ukraine policy being different, uh, perhaps the Iran policy. There is, in fact, a healthy uh, appetite among some factions of the conservative movement, conservative media, people like Tucker Carlson and Candace Owens, thunderously disagreeing with the, the more hawkish um, consensus among some Democrats and then some leading Republicans, like Lindsey Graham and others. Um, where does Trump come down on this? I think it's an open question. Obviously, he did strike Soleimani. He, he hired John Bolton. He uh, certainly engaged hawkish impulses at times. At other times, he sounded a more cautious note. He did commit to the pullout of Afghanistan that Biden carried through. Um, he spoke against the Iraq war. Um, it's an open question, and it's a shame he didn't participate in the debates, because I would really like to see where his policies differ from Nikki Haley and Joe Biden. Yeah. I mean, it is an open question only because 
because he dodged the question entirely. He has said this a million times before, and he keeps saying it because he gets away with it. If he doesn't get the right follow-up questions, he can simply say, nothing bad would ever happen when I'm president. Therefore, I don't have to answer specific questions about what I would do in the current situation. He needs to be able to distinguish himself from Joe Biden and how he is handling the ongoing crises in the country, including, by the way, economic crisis, an economic crisis like inflation, which has come down. and over the last year or so, in which Trump needs to address. Does he think that there's a policy rationale for that? If so, would he continue the policies that Biden had put into effect? If he thinks there's something outside of Biden's policymaking that has caused that, well, then say that, but then you can no longer blame Biden for inflation if you think there are these, um, these uh, factors outside of his control. But he, is, he gets away with this kind of murder, and then he benefits from the public's ability to project onto him whatever policy decisions they want. And this is really incumbent on journalists, and including right-leading journalists with whom he, who, you know, who we trust and with whom he has a better relationship, to follow up and yes. get him on the record of some things. Because you're right, there are a lot of people out there who are frustrated with the hawkishness that's been demonstrated by the core of both the Democratic and Republican Party. Is he really offering an alternative to that, or is he just Joe Biden standing next to an elephant instead of next to a donkey. Yeah, absolutely. At the same time, Biden is telling us exactly what he intends to do, which is coordinated strikes on Iranian targets outside of uh, Iran, um, which is, I think, somewhat similar to what Nikki Haley said she would do if she was president. Um, again, this is all within 48 hours or 72 hours of the attacks themselves, of, of the killing of American soldiers, for which, uh, of course, we should respond and bring the people responsible to justice. Uh, the question is, in this short time, Who there's already a consensus that, that not just whatever militia gr group perpetrated the attack, but that Iran is itself responsible. Um, it is true, and we, we know, that Iran funds terrorist groups and militia groups throughout the Middle East. And if you want to say they bear some responsibility for their actions, that is all well and good. That is certainly a standard that America's rivals hold uh, the U.S. to in our funding of other regimes. So fair enough. But did Iran specifically um, instruct them to do this? Did Iran order them to carry this out? Um, that would be approaching more of a confrontation with the country itself. Um, or is this something rogue operatives did on their own? I can't imagine we know the answer to that question. Again, within this is all happening over the course of three days, and yet we've already decided. Biden has already decided. Uh, by the way, without you know, forget Congress, forget our elected representatives debating and discussing the proper response to this conflict to this confrontation, and then empowering the president to take an action that is narrowly tailored to what they think their constituents believe is the right course of action. That is what our founders instructed—our uh, founders gave us a guidebook for yeah. what's supposed to happen when America is attacked. That's what's supposed to happen. But no, Biden is just going to decide it unilaterally on his own in consultation with his generals, and Congress is going to let him because they don't care to actually govern the country. Yeah, and you're right that there is some consistency in how we are treating this, um, with, with this attack, saying uh, Iran funds these groups so tangentially they are responsible uh, in how our adversaries internationally have perceived us in the past. But America objected aggressively to that approach when you see the Osama bin Laden 9-11 letter being a very clear articulation of frustration with American foreign policy 
in, uh, in of all places, Palestine. So at no point after 9-11 was there a reckoning where we could say, without getting canceled, once chickens are coming home to roost, we need to investigate Americans' uh, responsibility and its role as playing the rest of the world and why it's caused so many people to be angry. And yet now we're saying, well, we're going to play that exact same card and say, uh, because a group that did this we really don't know the specifics yet, and our own um, uh, State Department spokespeople have affirmed that they still don't have details on this. But because we know that these groups are Iranian-backed down the line, we can feel like we can provoke a full uh, war against uh, — they're saying it's not a war, but these strikes on Iran that have the potential for a lot of escalation. But one other point here that I don't want to just gloss over is Biden, the Biden administration articulating, inching toward recognizing Palestine as a state. I would love to see that happen, but we have to remember that this is in the context of Bibi Netanyahu spending his entire career saying, as long as I'm in charge, there will never be a Palestinian state. And as I'm about to talk about on my radar, um, over a dozen senior members of uh, the Israeli uh, cabinet and uh, representing multiple political parties in Israel showing up at the settler conference a varying, we are actually going to take over the Gaza Strip, we are going to settle the Gaza Strip. The difference between U.S. American stated policy and what Israel is saying about what its plans are is growing wider and wider. And it's hard not to interpret messaging from the Biden administration that is saying, oh, no, we're still going to do a two-state solution. Oh, no, we're going to recognize Palestine as a state as an attempt to insulate itself from what Israeli leaders themselves are saying as they get farther and farther away from what the American public believes is the right course of action forward on this. Well, coming up next, we'll tell you what's on our radars. Stay tuned. What's on your radar, Brianna? Well, Robbie, a shocking video emerged out of Israel this weekend that critics say confirms accusations that the country's senior leadership endorses an ethnic cleansing campaign in Gaza. Now, as reported by Plus 972 magazine, in Jerusalem on Sunday, 11 Israeli cabinet members, along with 15 members of parliament, attended a conference organized by a major settler group calling for Palestinians to be removed from Gaza all while dancing, singing, and joyfully, uh, joyfully rather, in an unusual public site in Israel after October 7th. The event, called Conference for Israel's Victory, uh, prominently featured a map of proposed settlements throughout the Gaza Strip. And during the event, senior members of Israeli leadership gave remarks endorsing the Israeli settlement of Gaza and the West Bank and the permanent, quote, transfer of Palestinians out of the region. Here's Israeli Public Security Minister Itmar Ben-Gavir speaking to the necessity of Israel controlling Palestinian territory. Today, everyone already understands that fleeing brings war, and that if you don't want another 7th of October, you have to return home to control the territory. And here's Israel's finance minister, Shmortrich, calling to settle the region from width to length. We are settling our land from width to length, controlling it and fighting terror always and bringing, with God's help, security to all of Israel. You know what the answer is. Without settlement, there is no security. 
Also invited to speak at the conference was convicted Israeli terrorist Rabbi Uzi Sharboff, a settlement movement leader who was sentenced to life in prison for terror attacks in the 80s. He was released after seven years. Opening the conference, he set the tone, arguing, quote, let's stop talking about parts of the land of Israel, what is A, B, and C, what is the north of the Strip. The entire Strip, the whole land, is part of the land of Israel. If there remains any confusion about the tone of the event, a pamphlet circulated at the conference argued that Palestinians should be dealt with via a, quote, Nakba 2, meaning the mass expulsion of the Arabs of Gaza. Prominent Israeli settler leader Daniela Weiss elaborated on this sentiment when asked by journalists covering the conference, saying, quote, we don't give them food, we don't give the Arabs anything, they will have to leave, the world will accept them. Now, the actions described there, of course, constitute violations of international law. But when asked whether the ICJ ruling requiring Israel to prevent genocide may have an effect on Netanyahu's governance, Weiss seemed unconcerned, responding that, quote, the government will accede to pressure from the public. And she might be right. A White House National Security Council spokesman responded to reports on the conference earlier this week, saying, quote, we are troubled by statements from the conference in Jerusalem yesterday encouraging resettlement in Gaza, which was endorsed and attended by members of the government of Israel. The U.S. does not support an Israeli reoccupation of Gaza. Other, other Western representatives, including Canada's Trudeau and France's foreign ministry, condemned the event as well. But as America tries to distance itself rhetorically from Israeli leadership, it continues to offer Israel its full financial and political backing, no matter how explicit Israel's illegal colonial goals are. In fact, the same day that the International Court of Justice found South Africa's genocide claims, quote, plausible and ordered Israel to take action to, quote, refrain from harming or killing Palestinians, the United States and nine of its allies cut funding to UNRWA, the UN agency on which 2 million of the 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza rely to survive. After public outcry at the somewhat flimsy basis for the cut in funding, unsubstantiated Israeli accusations that 12 out of 30,000 UNRWA staffers had participated in the October 7th attacks, Israel's story actually began to change. The Wall Street Journal beefed up its UNRWA coverage by running a story which broadened Israel's initial accusations against the 12 UNRWA workers, representing a mere 0.04% of all staff, to 10% of staffers who they claim have, quote, connections to the Hamas attack. The source of the Wall Street Journal report is an Israeli intelligence dossier. Among the connections described are, quote, close relatives with ties to Hamas. Of course, Hamas is the ruling authority in Gaza, responsible for trash pickup and social services and schools, typical of any government. To date, those connections have not been substantiated or independently investigated by our government. But one of the authors of that piece in the Wall Street Journal, Carrie Keller-Lynn, has come under scrutiny after pictures of her time serving in the IDF resurfaced. And while Israel had initially claimed its intel on UNRWA came from confessions, they changed their source to surveillance after human rights activists and journalists pointed out that Israel has caught flack in the past for using torture and that confessions from torture are notoriously unreliable. As journalist Ryan Graham pointed out, the New York Times published Israel's new explanation without making any reference to Israel's initial claim.
And most recently, Sky News reported that it had seen as the, the Israeli intelligence, the dossier, that provided the alleged basis for Israel's claims about UNRWA staffers, and they allege only six UNRWA workers were involved per that document. Now, meanwhile, the latest reports out of Gaza indicate that Palestinians are eating grass and drinking polluted water as famine looms. For the words of settler leader Daniela Weiss, that's the plan. During her speech at the settler conference, Weiss said, quote, Gaza, the southern gate to Israel, will be wide open. Gazans will leave for all parts of the world, and the Jewish people will make the land of our forefathers flourish. Each and every clod of the land of Israel that our soldiers have within their grasp gives us the necessary strength to fight against a cruel and eternal enemy. It is not to a foreign land that we are returning, but rather to the golden sands of our Gaza. There is no day after. The day is today. It's every day in which the Jewish people is victorious and returns to settle in Gaza. Despite the goal articulated at the conference of using famine to drive Palestinians out of Gaza, the White House stood by its decision to cut aid. We absolutely share the concerns about the humanitarian crisis that's in Gaza right now. Uh, certainly, we know uh, that severe hunger is one of those issues, which is why we're working so hard to get more security assistance into the people of Gaza, which is why it's so important that these discussions that we've been having about an extended pause actually come to fruition. Because it's not just, it is primarily about getting those hostages out, of course, but it also will give you a, a longer opportunity to increase that, that aid. So absolutely we're concerned about that, no question about it. Now look, we suspended uh, funding temporarily to UNRWA as they do this investigation. We believe it was the right thing to do uh, to uh, stop that funding while they investigate, and we'll see how that investigation goes. Now, given the life-saving nature of UNRWA uh, and the fact that the people alleged to be involved were immediately terminated, one could easily imagine continuing the funding while the investigation took place, rather than punishing Palestinians for an investigation that has not yet borne fruit. And there has been admissions in the past that UNRWA is as important as I'm describing it here. For contrast, here's State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller responding to Israeli accusations that UNRWA fosters Hamas just about a week before the ICJ decision. Go ahead. Thank you, Matt. In light of a January 9, uh, Israel Knesset member-led meeting in the, in the Knesset condemning the UN agency, UNRWA, for fostering a welfare-dependent Palestinian population that breeds a dissent and teaches children in their textbooks that the land is Palestine and Israel is the illegal occupier, with other instruction to hate and kill Jews, plus their association with terrorist, terrorist groups like Hamas and Palestinian Authority. What is Secretary Blinken's response, response to Knesset members Sharon Haskell and Simka Rotman, who are calling for the funding of UNRWA to stop, and I have a follow-up. So I'm not going to respond to the comments uh, by individual members of the Knesset, but I will say that UNRWA has done and continues to do invaluable work uh, to address the humanitarian situation in Gaza at great personal risk to UNRWA me uh, members. Uh, I believe it's over 100 UNRWA staff members have been killed doing this life-saving work, uh, and we continue to not only support it, but we continue to commend them for the really heroic efforts that they make uh, uh, oftentimes uh, while making the, the greatest sacrifice. Invaluable work, the greatest sacrifice. What a difference a week and an ICJ decision makes. 
while America defends its support of Israel, citing shared day-after goals of a two-state solution, Israeli leaders repeatedly reject that outcome. At the conference, Communications Minister Shlomo Kari insisted, quote, there will never be a Palestinian state between the river and the sea. We have an obligation to act for our sake and for the sake of the supposedly uninvolved for voluntary migration, even if the war that was forced upon us turns the issue of voluntary migration into coercion to the point that they say, I want to leave. Remember that last year, the Senate passed a resolution stipulating that the phrase, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, and its variations are anti-Semitic calls for genocide. And the House censured Representative Rashida Tlaib for using that slogan. No, none of that same censorship coming for very similar statements coming out of Israeli leadership. Meanwhile, at Saturday's Jerusalem conference, families who had uh, uh, signed up to resettle Gaza were invited up into the stage and celebrated, a map demonstrating new locations for settlements in Gaza, offering new names for sites on which Palestinian cities currently stand, or at least where they stood prior to being obliterated by Israel post-October 7th, was prominently featured. The conference featured a booth where attendees could register as an interested settler. Of course, Israeli settlements of occupied Palestinian land are illegal under international law. As Article 49 of the Geneva Convention states, the occupying power shall not deport or transfer parts of its own civilian population into the territory it occupies and precludes individual or mass forcible transfers as well as deportations of protected persons from an occupied territory. According to Plus 972 reporting, the idea of transferring Gaza's Palestinian population was mentioned in nearly every speech at the Jerusalem conference. In the words of National Security Minister Ben Gavir, quote, only transfer will bring peace. Oh, and in case you were wondering what Ben Gavir's response to the ICJ judgment at The Hague was explicitly, he tweeted, the Hague schmeg. The United States continues to affirm that Israel is one of our closest allies. Currently, a $14.3 billion aid package is pending before Congress. That's the background mm -hmm. of all that's been going on. So with new reporting that came out uh, today that uh, Joe Biden is interested in this two-state solution, he is seemingly moving to address the settler attacks on Palestinians that have been happening in the West Bank, again, not where there's Hamas, but in the West Bank as opposed to in Gaza. Uh, it does seem like there's some recognition that the crimes that are going to being committed, the war crimes that are being committed are so loud and so obvious, including exemplified by what happened at this uh, conference, that it seems the administration is forced to say something. But I do think there's still a lot of doubt about how far Biden is willing to go to curb this activity if, at the end of the day, the critique, the public critique, is not tied to any withdrawal of aid to Israel, even at the same time that there was such quick withdrawal of aid to UNRWA. Yeah, it wasn't just the U.S., the U.K., France as mm -hmm. well uh, criticized this conference and um, the involvement in some of uh, Netanyahu's allies being there. I mean, I, I think the question does become, if we are we're giving them all this support and we remain vocally committed to them, but they don't do anything we tell them to do. Uh, they, they don't take our advice to de-escalate and Biden says he wants a two-state solution and Yahoo utterly rejects that. Um, Netanyahu has said they're not going to permanently occupy Gaza, but um, there's some confusion over that. Obviously, some of his supporters do want that. 
Um, I think it's— His cabinet members, right? right? I think it's an indictment of Joe Biden that, again, if we're, the purpose of our, of our dollar diplomacy is, is supposedly to get policy preferences that we want implemented. So if we think it's in our best national security interest for there to be a two-state and there, for there to be an end to hostilities between these two parties, I mean, an elimination of Hamas, ideally, but an, an, an end to the constant war there, and that's what we're trying to get, and we don't agree with what they're doing, but we're going to give them the money anyway, what's the point? It seems like, again, the American taxpayer on the hook for everything, not getting what our leaders say is in our best national security interests, and it's very frustrating. American troops' lives being implicated as well as escalation spreads across the Middle East. We'll keep covering this and more. Stick with us. More rising after this. Robbie, please regale us with your radar today. All right, Brianna. Well, there is no pastime more beloved by Congress than beating up on social media executives. And on Wednesday, members of the Senate Judiciary Committee engaged in yet another round of fact-free histrionics as they thunderously denounced four tech CEOs, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, X's Linda Yaccarino, Snapchat's Evan Spiegel, and Discord's Jason Citron for a litany of allegedly unsafe business practices. Attending the committee meeting were the parents of several young people who tragically took their own lives after being scammed or bullied on social media. As such, the proceedings felt very much like a trial in which the CEOs, Zuckerberg in particular, stood accused of literal child murder. Now, many of the Senate's anti-tech crusaders and, frankly, main characters were present, including Republican Senators Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, and Josh Hawley, and Democratic Senators Dick Durbin, Amy Klobuchar, and Richard Blumenthal. Senator Elizabeth Warren wasn't there, though she received several favorable shout-outs from the Republicans. Indeed, both sides of the political aisle were exceedingly pleased with themselves for acting in bipartisan fashion to wildly accuse four business leaders of complicity in despicable crimes against children. Now, if that sounds like an exaggeration, consider that Hawley prompted Zuckerberg to apologize to the families in the audience and then faulted him for refusing to pay them damages from his personal fortune. Have you compensated the victims, Hawley demanded. Take a look. Senator, our job and what we take seriously is making sure that we build industry-leading tools to find harmful to content, make money. take it off the services, uh, to make money, and to build tools that empower parents. So you didn't take any people. action. You didn't that's take any true, action. Senator. You didn't fire anybody. You haven't that's compensated a single not, victim. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. There's families of victims here today. Have you apologized to the victims? I've, Would I've, you like to do so now? Well. They're here. You're on national television. Would you like now to apologize to the victims who have been harmed by your product? Show them the pictures. Would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good people? Mr. Zuckerberg, why should your company not be sued for this? Why is it that you can claim you hide behind a liability shield? You can't be held accountable. Shouldn't you be held accountable personally? Will you take personal responsibility? Senator, I, I think I've already answered this. 
There are two big problems with the senator's approach, who they see as the villains here and what they see as the solutions. And I want to start with the first part before moving on to the second. So we have to scrutinize exactly the harms being alleged here. The purpose of this hearing was to explore social media platforms' efforts to combat child sexual abuse material known as CSAM and online exploitation more generally. Of course, all major social media platforms already prohibit CSAM and do, in fact, cooperate with law enforcement to identify and remove abusers as they should. Zuckerberg patiently explained that Facebook has made millions of reports to law enforcement and to child advocacy organizations and uses AI tools to automatically detect and eliminate abuse. Quote, we take down anything that we think is sexual abuse material, Zuckerberg said at the hearing. The social media platforms represented at the hearing all work tirelessly to eliminate that vile content. Now, what critics are really alleging is that despite these efforts, some users of social media, including underage people, children and teenagers, still fall prey to pernicious behavior from sexual predators, scammers, and bullies. Take the example of Gavin Guffey, whose tragic death was referenced by Lindsey Graham in his opening remarks. At age 17, Guffey fell victim to a sextortion scheme. A con artist tricked Guffey into sending sexual images of himself on Instagram and then demanded compensation in exchange for keeping them private. Guffey tragically eventually killed himself. Now, this is an appalling crime and should be treated as such. In response, the victim's father, Brandon Guffey, a South Carolina state representative, sponsored legislation to strengthen the law as it applies to sexual blackmail of a minor. Predators who engage in fraud, blackmail, and sexual manipulation should absolutely be held accountable for their crimes. They should be brought to justice. But let's be clear here. The perpetrators of this crime is not Mark Zuckerberg or Linda Yaccarino or any other tech executive or Elon Musk if he'd been there. The perpetrator is the person who blackmailed Guffey. Anyone trying to move the accountability spotlight to the platform itself is engaging in blame shifting, I'm sorry to say, in service of an agenda that's pro-regulation and ultimately pro-censorship. More on that in a minute. Now, in other contexts, the fact that Facebook itself is not to blame would be obvious. In 2010, Rutgers University student Tyler Clementi killed himself, you might remember this story, after his roommate secretly recorded him having sex with another male student. Now, this became a big national story, understandably, and the roommate, Darren Ravi, was prosecuted and convicted for invasion of privacy and some other offenses. But nobody thought the webcam company was at fault. And in fact, many Republicans intuitively understand this principle when it comes to other subjects. Indeed, the GOP generally takes the position that if one person shoots another person, the victim ought not to sue the gun manufacturer. In fact, gun industry enjoys major liability shields from exactly that thing. Guns don't kill people. People do. That's a common maxim of Second Amendment supporters. And in my view, they're right. I agree with them. But when it comes to social media, where the extent of the harm to young people is not in any way meaningfully settled, and in fact routinely exaggerated, many Republicans are marching in lockstep with their Democratic colleagues. At the hearing, Graham echoed the exact rhetoric of Democrats accusing Zuckerberg and the others of having, quote, blood on your hands. Of course, Graham is far from the first political figure to make this claim. In July 2021, remember, President Joe Biden accused Zuckerberg of literally killing people because Facebook and Instagram had not done more to purge content that was critical of COVID mandates. That's the broader agenda of both the Democratic and Republican parties, greater government control over social media content. In order to obtain this control, senators from both parties have sponsored legislation to repeal or reform Section 230, the federal statute that protects internet companies from some liability. 
Now, Section 230 was a frequent punching bag at the Wednesday hearing. Quote, for the past 30 years, Section 230 has largely remained unchanged, allowing big tech to grow into the most profitable industry in the history of capitalism without fear of liability for unsafe practice practices. That was a quote from Durbin at the hearing. That has to change, he said. Graham was even more explicit, calling on Congress to repeal Section 230 altogether. Now, in the past, former President Donald Trump, Biden, Warren, Klobuchar, Cruz, Hawley, and on and on, many other major political figures, they've all said similar things. But without Section 230, free speech on social media would be fundamentally threatened. It would be over. The reason the platforms permit users to post content at will is Section 230, which does establish that the content in question is the responsibility of the user rather than the platform. Think about it. If Facebook, Instagram, X were liable for all the content that appeared in their feeds, every post, every tweet, they'd have to vet it much more carefully. For one thing, this would dramatically increase the need for the platforms to engage in content moderation to protect themselves from libel lawsuits. Does Graham really want that? Does Donald Trump? On the contrary, complaining that social media companies engage in too much moderation is a standard conservative talking point. And there's merit to it. Again, I agree with them. As revealed by independent investigations like Matt Taibbi's Twitter files and my own Facebook files, those platforms censored contrarian content about elections and COVID-19 at the federal government's behest. Republicans were rightly outraged. Killing or even limiting Section 230 plays directly into the hands of the would-be censors. Suffice it to say that we should certainly have compassion for people who are victimized on social media, of course. And we should continue to explore methods of detoxifying the platforms, making them safer for kids. But the agenda of the Senate Judiciary Committee is not the protection of children. It's greater control over dissident speech. Don't fall for it. I think that's exactly right. Um, I broadly uh, agree with your uh, analogy and certainly the implications of what would happen if people were liable for anything that was put on anybody's feed, which is why Section 230 is so important and why threats over removing it should be paid very uh, close attention to by all of those who are interested in being able to use these social media platforms, which have been so instrumental at various political moments, including the current one, to continue to be free. For um, us, for the kind of content we produce. I mean, it's, right. it's, and we think it's value. We think alternative perspectives are important, and we rely yeah. on this infrastructure to do it. Yeah, I remember uh, we were in, my, in the tort class that I took in, in law school. We had this conversation about how the law is structured in, in a liability context and whether or not you want to actually create higher liability standards for certain people in certain instances, and why would you do that and where. And as we were talking it through, it emerged, what the lesson that we were being taught um, Socratically was that there are circumstances where you want liability to attach to the person who has the most control in the situation to prevent the harm. In the scenario that you described with the college student who filmed their uh, other fellow student having gay sex and then they um, committed suicide, the idea that the camera company, the streaming company, would have any ability to discern the kind of content that was being recorded on their device and could do that in a way that didn't undermine the purpose and utility of the device itself, it, it, it's unfathomable. But if we're talking about, say, a rail line company that has control of its own tracks, it has control of having maintenance over the tracks, picking what kind of brakes are used in the train, all of those kinds of things, then we might say, well, I'm going to say there's a stricter liability standard for them, especially if they're hauling dangerous cargo, than uh, you know, a, a farmer whose tree might have fallen over the tracks and doesn't have it anywhere near the ability to monitor uh, and, and keep 
and keep the environment safe. And in, and in this instance, it's just really hard to understand how anyone could imagine that in the instance of interpersonal bullying, the company has more of an ability to intervene when what we're really just saying is the kind of horrible things that people do to each other and have always done to each other in the world simply because they're happening on a social media platform needs to extend liability to folks that really aren't in the position of control here. It's, it's very misguided, and I think you're completely right when you say it's just a proxy attack on free speech. That's exactly that. The hearing was really remarkable. It wasn't just Holly. It was all of them were just thunderously angry yeah. at Zuckerberg and the others. And I, I understand the pain of the families. I can't even imagine that. It's so horrible. And I would absolutely want, again, the person directly responsible to face the harshest possible penalty. You want to talk about strengthening those penalties, having more penalties for, um, for swatting people, for, for using the Internet for criminal activity, but it's because the underlying activity of that person is criminal, yeah. and we can talk about dealing with that. But this is this is such a misdirected yeah, effort. Yeah, if, if it were if it were that you know Facebook had a policy that didn't allow folks who were you know if, if someone's harassing you and you block them and they keep making new accounts sure. and they're able to keep finding you and there's some technological intervention that's feasible, possible, maybe even exists, but Facebook doesn't implement it. That's a different kind of a question, right? Then it's in violation right. of its own policies. But this... Right, if they, if they, because they have sloppy security and they leak your data or your location, right. someone who then kills you, right. or if they, and they, they did get sued when they misrepresented how well uh, video was doing on the platform. Mm. And a lot of media organizations pivoted to video and that was untrue and they got sued and they had to pay yeah. out. So it's not that they can't be sued, it's that this is blame shifting. Right. Again, as I said, in service of the broader agenda, which is yeah. the U.S. government wants more control over what we can say. Yeah. All right, uh, we have Brianna's radar up next. Stay tuned. More rising in just a minute. This is what Donald Trump's inner circle is vowing to wage on the pop star if she throws her support behind President Joe Biden as we inch closer to the 2024 presidential election per TMZ. Now, back in 2020, Swift expressed her support for Joe Biden in a post online, which included customized Biden 2020 cookies. The then Democratic presidential nominee responded to the tweet, writing, Taylor, thanks for your support and for speaking out at this crucial moment in our nation's history. Election day is right around the corner. Are you ready for it? Hmm. Democratic strategist James Carville was asked if attacking Taylor Swift is a smart strategy while trying to earn votes from women as conspiracies around Taylor Swift and the NFL over her relationship with tight end Travis Kelsey swirl online. Take a listen. If you're Donald Trump or, or part of the far right and you're having trouble with women voters, is there a worse strategy than attacking Taylor Swift? You know... I don't think there's anything strategic about this. I think these, I think most of these people are sexually inadequate, and they go for all this crazy stuff. And I don't think, and there's nothing strategic about something not stupid. Wow. Um, it's all the Taylor talk. Former Wyoming representative Liz Cheney wrote on X, Taylor Swift is a national treasure. So, okay, we talked about this yesterday, and there have actually been a number of developments mm. in the previous 24 hours. So to refresh the audience, um, some conservatives, it's actually just two people. It's Jack Posobiec, who's an online MAGA far-right type person, and Vivek Ramaswamy, 
suggested that there's some kind of, again, the term is PSYOP going on, whereby there's some plot to have, uh, to, to the relationship between Kelsey and uh, Swift is fake. It's uh, an orchestrated plot mm -hmm. to help elect Joe Biden because together, you know, individually they're both compelling and popular figures. Together they're even more popular and compelling to you know a whole swath of people who like pop culture and entertainment and sports. And eventually she's going to or they're going to in endorse Joe Biden as she did previously, and this is going to help turn the election toward him again. Which she did endorse Joe Biden last time, so for. You know, it, not in a, she's not a particularly, I would say, politically engaged or active uh, per, for celebrities. Uh, she just, like, endorsed him the way virtually all of Hollywood does and, and then didn't go to much more elaborate steps. And she's likely to do that again. Um, but conservatives were, again, some, just really just two people, Vivek Ramaswamy and Jack Posobiec, were making it into a bigger deal. Now, I was seeing in the last 24 hours a lot of uh, pushback, actually. You know, one of, example, one of these examples where there's, like, two people saying the kind of groan-inducing things, and then like 8,000 people telling them, what are you doing? Including The Daily Wire's Matt Walsh, who is you know, stridently conservative and socially conservative, saying that Taylor Swift is not like in the top 100 people he was most mad at. Um, uh, Ross Douthat of The New York Times wrote a very a funny column, actually, about how, frankly, Taylor Swift and uh, Travis Kelsey are almost in some ways would be perceived as like a conservative, not a politically conservative couple, but kind of a, in the way that the conservative, the, the trad, the, whatever this, the, the cultural conservative movement yeah. is about having, you know, the, 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 the football player, the strong man and the, the, the pretty girl fall in love and like that would that's that's a story that conservatives want to endorse yeah. in every other circumstance and it's happening so and here it. they're rejecting it and it's not a good idea well I, I think that's exactly why it's so triggering because they are archetypal um examples of what conservatives say that they want they say that they want strong robust athletic men they say they want you know thin blonde women and they want uh, heterosexual relationships um, you know, there, she's a country single, singer. He's from like, I guess the Midwest. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Is he from Kansas city or is he just play there? I don't she's actually know. She's captain and I'm <laughs> on the bleachers. Yes. I mean. <laughs> right. I mean, all of her songs are, are about, about exactly the, 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 the girl meeting the, the quarterback or whatever it, and falling it, in love. Exactly. And, and so I do think that this is uh, getting under the craw of some conservatives precisely because Everything about them, all the culture signifiers, suggest that they're supposed to be uh, conservative, and they're not. Now, the idea that this has been orchestrated is absurd when you take note of the fact that the Chiefs have been very successful in getting to the Super Bowl and winning several Super Bowls in the last five years or so. So the idea that you know the NFL is rigging games and outcomes just to get him to this point because he's being boosted by the fame of Taylor Swift does feel like, okay, I mean— Fine if it's like the longest game ever, and like, why why this year and not two three years ago when they were also in the Super Bowl? Like, has it never been the case? But like, I mean, the whole thing is just too silly to enter entertain. But I will say, Robbie, I don't think that you can frame this as just like one or two conservatives who are mad about this because I was looking at a uh, a Fox News uh, uh, segment with Jesse Waters where the bottom was: Is Taylor Swift a Pentagon asset? I've seen, um, uh, I think it's um, uh, other Taylor, uh, other uh, Fox News hosts 
talking about like, why is Taylor Swift everywhere? Why wouldn't you go away? Seemingly not being aware of the extent mm -hmm. to which they are the ones that are putting her everywhere and making it so that and she and it, can't go away. Right, and I would say that, again, she actually, like the message of her music has a fundamental just, again, not politically conservative, but it's just about girl meets boy. Like, like it's, it's not offensive to people, and so they like it. And trying to make it offensive is not a good strategy. I, I actually want to read from part of this Ross Douthat column because it was so good. He, write, he, says, he writes that there's a brief period in the latter part of the COVID pandemic between Glenn Youngkin being elected and Donald Trump returning, where he became convinced American liberalism was headed for truly epic defeat um, with you know, all of the COVID stuff and some of the woke hysteria. And he, you know, he says he thinks liberalism is still in all kinds of trouble, but the reason it's surviving is that is conservatives, conservatism's inability to just be normal itself, even yeah. for a minute. And I think this is a good example yeah. of that. Because I rem remember when conservatives would always say, I mean, they still say this, and I agree with them, it's annoying that politics has to get injected to, into everything. Why can't we just enjoy stuff? Why can't we just enjoy sports? Why can't we just enjoy movies without being lectured to? But here, they're the ones doing that. Like, they're injecting politics into this. They're, you know, and again, I don't know that they is that many people, but as, as you said, Fox talked about it. Um, it's been talking, see, it's talking, good. And talking see, it's good. about it. I, I think it, this is, it's good. It can be good. Something can be um, a good story for right wing media without being helpful to the project of making conservatism and republicanism seem normal and appealing to moderate people who basically just want, like, to be let, like lower taxes and to be left alone and, yeah, and frankly, Joe Biden's great I, and, I, and they got to worry about being too weird. And I think there's a world where they might actually be pushing her into an endorsement. Right. If remember, Donald Trump's declared the, war on her, I don't. What's she going to do? And, and this isn't. First of all, the implications of him doing that are not great. Um, you know, yeah. there, he has a record of having his words, rightly or wrongly, to whatever extent you want to attribute the fault to him, resulting in people being harassed. Uh, the lawsuit against the two uh, election poll workers in Georgia that they won, they got their damage award was largely because they had to move houses and get security to save themselves from all the people who were attacking them at the direction of um, Trump and Giuliani. So I, I don't love that. But all of that aside, you know, this is not 2020, where Joe Biden was simply a benign space holder con that was running against Donald Trump. Now he has his own record, which is being shamefully marred by his behavior in Gaza in the eyes of the majority of Democrats. So to the extent that Taylor Swift might have been on the fence and might have been considering even sitting this one out, you know, does the dynamic change when Donald Trump is saying, I'm going to wage a war against you? Does that shift you back into the camp of, OK, fine, at least not the guy who's saying that he wants to attack me personally on a national stage? Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting choice, but we will continue to monitor the war on Swift and we'll have more rising right after this. A new book titled Amateur Hour, Kamala Harris in the White House, looks into the life and career of Vice President Kamala Harris and her ascent to power on the national stage, starting from her career in San Francisco all the way to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. Amateur Hour takes a deep dive into who Kamala Harris really is and how she rose to the second highest political office in the United States of America. Author of Amateur Hour and reporter at The Washington Examiner and Breitbart News, Charlie Spearing, joins us now to discuss his new book. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Yeah, I, I, I suspect we have different critiques of Kamala Harris, despite us both having spent a good deal of time critiquing her. Laid out for us, uh, what, what is the real issue with Kamala Harris? Who is the real Kamala? Well, I think right now it's very obvious that she's kind of been found wanting by Team Biden, by his, Biden and his team. Um, you know, thin-skinned, kind of unwilling to take hits for the, you know, take one for the team, kind of protective of her own political brand and not very loyal behind the scenes in Washington right now. So talk to us about some of the reporting you've done for this book. Obviously, everyone has, you know, done commentary on her her speech, the kind of word salad way she she just, what did you say, Brianna? She just describes the things around her and makes it sound like she's giving a speech. Um, but 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 walk us through it. You know, going back, I, I, I see your book describes her being just kind of, in a non-ideological way, a, a difficult manager or team leader or person to work with. Um, is that what you found? Yeah, going back from the beginning in California, how she first got her start in politics out, you know, you go to, into any comment section of any article about Kamala Harris, there's a lot of talk about Willie Brown. And so I go through who is Willie Brown and how did he help her get onto the political scene in San Francisco? How did she rise so quickly in California in, in a one party state and ultimately go to the Senate and uh, sort of when she first started her presidential campaign, that's when she kind of fell flat, but kept pursuing um, power and ultimately ended up as our vice president. What do you say to folks who hear you reference um, chat about her romantic life in comment sections and say, well, that's not why I have a critique of Kamala Harris. Her personal life is not really my business. My concern is that she held herself out as a pro progressive prosecutor in a progressive city in a progressive state like San Francisco, beat out someone who had much better, a much better racial uh, record of bona fides on that issue, but was perceived perhaps because she's black and female and the more progressive candidate, Tom Hanlon, was white and male as the more progressive of the two and has been kind of misrepresenting herself as someone who shares the interest of the base of California politics when she, in fact, does not, and who's, who sees some of the personal issues as a, as, a, as a distraction and perhaps an unfair sort of a hit. Right. Her relationship with Willie Brown was not just a personal relationship. It was all, all very political. And she also benefited a lot financially from his support. And when she first ran for office, Willie Brown was there behind her to support her campaign. So you can't really have a conversation about how she started her political career without bringing up, you know, the hundreds of thousands of dollars she earned after Brown appointed her to uh, these political positions while they were having their one-year relationship, him at the age of 60, she age 29. So that's a lot of it, how it got started. But you're, you also mentioned the progressive complaints of Kamala in California. And absolutely, there was so much great journalism done by the left when she sort of ran for president, really exposing her as not really a progressive, not really, she paints herself as a progressive prosecutor, but she doesn't do the work. She doesn't open the doors to the activists that she claims to represent. And she really sort of emerged as kind of a centrist figure in California politics. Do you think that's true to who she actually is there some is there what i'm asking is there some person underneath whose real policies you know emerge or she she can't help but uh, but eventually uh, uh, be that person that she actually is or is she just non-ideological and is a chameleon and is willing to adapt herself to whatever the right politics are for the situation you know california versus the national stage that kind of thing 
Yeah, you saw this during her presidential campaign. She really worked hard to align herself with Bernie Sanders, trying to earn respect from the left as well as people from the corporate donor class. But ultimately, she struggled on the national stage. I detail in the book how she ran into issues like issues like Medicare for all, where she stood up and supported Bernie Sanders. But when it came time to explain it, kind of fell flat and found herself revisiting exactly what she believed on the issue. And I think that was a huge flag for leftist activists who wanted to see something a little more serious. Yeah, I, I do think that she was the kind of archetypal wolf in sheep's clothing that conservatives have—I'm sorry, progressives actually have have now become quite attuned to in the post-Obama era. She was kind of foisted on the left um, from our perspective uh, with the hope that we wouldn't notice what her policies were or what her clumsiness uh, about talking about issues like Medicare for All, for instance, really revealed, and her unwillingness to take certain kind of commitments with respect to unshackling herself from corporate dollars that might also have freed her up to take different kinds of positions, whether or not she wanted to ideologically is a different question. When I've written about Kamala Harris in the past, I've been really intrigued by her family background and the fact that apparently at one point her parents, who were progressives themselves, I think more authentically so, questioned her choice to become a prosecutor in the first instance. Did, did you glean any Thing in particular from researching her personal family background and those relationships? Yeah, her both of her parents were part of the Afro-American study group in Berkeley. And so they were very much interested in very leftist figures like Chairman Mao, like Fidel Castro. They very much supported the ideas, the Marxist ideas that they, that they professed and discussed it. So it was very much a part of her upbringing. And yeah, it seems like Kamala Harris seemed more interested in pursuing um, a more practical, a uh, more practical career path. Seeing how her other people in her orbit worked within the legal systems to sort of emerge as a political force. Has she? Do you think she's aspired to be president all along, um, and is in fact planning to eventually run for the presidency? I think so, Robbie. But the big reason I wrote the book, not every vice president deserves a, a book all about them. But the reason I wrote the book is she has a very good chance of becoming the 47th president. And we should really know, be able to talk about exactly who she is, how she got where she is, what her problems are in the national scene and what the Democrat Party thinks of her going into the next election. Because as Nikki Haley has been campaigning incessantly on, you know, a vote for Joe Biden is a vote for Kamala Harris, a president Kamala Harris. And I think that even if she even if Biden loses, I think she still has some presidential aspirations of her own. Where what what drives you to that conclusion? Because I have I have similarly wondered what motivates her. It does seem like her career um, the choice to become a prosecutor seems geared toward a certain kind of um, political advancement, especially if you're coming from a progressive background with parents that understand structurally why the criminal justice system is such a um, hotbed of inequity and a problem. Uh, as, a, as a lawyer, it's a kind of a known trajectory to say, I'm going to go work in a, as a prosecutor for a few years, and that will enable me to enter a career in politics. So it, it does seem on some level that she does, does have very clear political ambitions. But I've always been on the fence about how badly she, she wants to be president of the United States of America, because it doesn't seem frankly, when you're watching her in these interviews, that she has much of an appetite uh, for it or any any sense of um, independent 
like policy drive or that she she has some principles or platform that she's doggedly trying to pursue to uh, as compared let's say with Joe Biden who's politics I disagree with substantially, but very much seems to have had a political agenda and a threat that you can trace over his long career in elected office. Right. We see Kamala kind of, and a lot of progressives have pointed this out, that she really struggles to sort of deliver just the basic talking points on a lot of Biden's issues. And that's why the Biden team kind of sees her as not very useful as promoting his agenda. So she's more focused on the issues where she plays better on the issue than Biden does. This is why she's currently working on an, an abortion tour, uh, supporting women's rights and the women's right to choose. I think last year she embarked on a college tour where she sort of spent time in her safe spaces there. So I think that's where the Biden team is kind of happy with her right now, playing in her safe spaces. Um, but at the same time, if you know, nobody really thought Joe Biden would ever be president. They kind of treated him as a laughingstock during the Obama years. So maybe Kamala Harris is thinking at this point, if Joe Biden can become the next president of the United States, why not me? Hmm. Charlie Spearing, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the book, we will be sure to check that out. Let's get it back on screen if we can. After uh, Amateur Hour, Kamala Harris in the White House. Check it out. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. DEI has been a subject of fierce debate on social media, with billionaire Mark Cuban receiving a bit of a wake-up call on the legality of using race and gender as a hiring metric by Commissioner Andrea Lucas of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Cuban on Sunday tweeted that he has never hired anyone based exclusively on race, gender, religion, but that race and gender can be part of the equation. Lucas disagreed, writing, unfortunately, you're dead wrong on black letter Title VII law. As a general rule, race, sex can't even be a motivating factor, nor a plus factor, tiebreaker, or tipping point. It's important employers understand the ground rules here. Here now to discuss this story is Will Hild, Executive Director at Consumers Research. Will, welcome back to Rising. Glad to be with you. So there's been a lot of discussion of DEI um, lately in conservative media and on social media. I see Mark Cuban has been tweeting a lot on the subject. Um, what do you make of this? Well, this was really kicked off by the Harvard admissions case ruling that basically said that colleges and universities could not consider race or sex in their admissions programs anymore. And strangely enough, uh, corporations had been relying on this previous jurisprudence that allowed for it in some limited admissions cases to allow for race and sex-based discrimination and promotion and hiring uh, in a lot of these DEI programs. And it was always spurious whether some of the reasoning in these higher ed cases would apply to corporations and was had been tested <clears throat> A couple of times and and not as andrea lucas noted uh is not the law when it comes to hiring but now that that admissions case is, is out there's no question that uh race and sex-based discrimination in hiring and promotion is, is per se illegal but a lot of these dei programs basically are that i mean that's literally what they're doing and so you've seen a lot of corporations uh struggle to you know keep their dei departments happy as they basically clip their wings and say you can't be doing this anymore DEI came about as a result of a number of studies uh, that demonstrated that 
race and sex-based discrimination is pervasive against historically marginalized groups. There's a famous 2004 study that showed that resume applicants with identical—applicants, uh, rather, with identical resumes um, had very different results in the application process. Uh, employers were 50 percent more likely to call back an applicant with a stereotypically white name versus a stereotypically black name. Uh, of course, there's further statistics that show that a high school dropout who is white gets uh, more salary than a college graduate who is black or Hispanic. What should be done about addressing those disparities? I can't speak to the methodology of those studies, but what I can say that to the extent you're in efforts at a corporation are trying to remove racial discrimination from the equation or sex discrimination from the equation, that is in line with the law. And to the extent they're doing that, that's fantastic. But what DEI departments did was basically try to go in and start doing racial and sex-based bean counting and even hit, you know, some corporations, they've even set specific race and sex-based quotas for hiring and promotion. And that's just flat out illegal. I think, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, 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 I would push back against that. I think that you say, of course, these corporations should try to address the discrimination that's happening at those corporations. But it does seem like whenever there's any effort that acknowledges the race of the candidate, that is being characterized as a quota system. So I wonder if you've given any thought to what exactly a policy looks like that you would find to be acceptable that address the fact that in hiring circumstances, routinely employers, not necessarily intentionally, but in fact, are privileging white male applicants over others unless there is some policy intervention that takes place. What I would find acceptable is that companies focus on providing best quality goods and services at reasonable prices. We're a consumer protection organization. And what we've seen from these corporations is they focus on their DEI programs, which really do nothing for the bottom line. They don't help their shareholders and they don't help deliver better quality products to their, to their consumers. They focus instead on, again, race and sex-based hiring. So uh, that is illegal in this country, regardless of what the intentions of the corporations are, as we saw with Mark Cuban. It's illegal to violate Title VII of, of the Civil Rights Act and, and include that in hiring. It doesn't really regard, matter what their intentions are. But in practice, what it means is that corporations are made worse off and consumers are made worse off because these DEI departments hijack them and focus on these other extraneous things that also now happen to be per se illegal. Well, well, there's been a lot of research, actually, that having diversity, a, a lot of different kinds of diversity in the workforce is actually an improvement and a benefit to consumers. That's part of the case that Mark, Mark Cuban was making in his tweet. But I still feel like we're not really addressing the question. Of course, race-based discrimination is illegal, including, and principally, the race-based discrimination that was encoded in American law up until the time that, you know, my parents were just children in this country, and which remains in uh, de facto ways, as I've just described, as many numerous studies have revealed. What do you do about the fact that we know, if given the same exact resume, having a stereotypically black name versus a stereotypically white name have different results? What do we do when we know that black and Hispanic people with much higher education who are more qualified than white high school graduates aren't getting the same job opportunities or salary um, opportunities. What do we do about that absent any DEI program or any kind of program that is conscious of the very racial discrimination that is happening in the first place? Well, what we do about that is, is what we did uh, probably over 50 years ago, which is to ban it and make it an actionable tort uh, in law. There's already a large body of labor law that makes such discrimination uh, illegal. So. Uh, having a program and having department in a corporation that then reinserts race and sex-based hiring and promotion schemes is not a solution to race and sex-based uh, promotion. 
It is, is the opposite of that. Uh, in terms of companies that do better because uh, that they're more diverse, no one is saying that, that companies should, should pursue a non-diverse workforce. What they're saying is that their main, what I'm saying is that their main focus should be on serving their customers with high quality goods and, 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 and services. It would, you'd be basically saying that there aren't people of merit and competence uh, who can serve uh, uh, consumers to say that the, the companies need to set race and sex-based quotas no, in order to have a diverse workforce. I, what I, they I, should I be don't... focusing on is people with, uh, with competence and merit so that they can focus on serving their consumers. This is the purpose of a corporation. Yeah, I, I think the problem is that qualified applicants are being turned away and not being hired because there's discrimination against people on the basis of their race and sex. And corporations, companies knowing that that's happening implicitly, tacitly, not with, that, with, not with intention, taking an effort to try to in investigate their own biases and try to counter that in their hiring practices, you're saying that is a problem in and of itself and that the default situation should be, as I'm understanding it, please do correct me as I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, the default should be that we allow the discrimination against black, brown people, other historically marginalized groups, women, et cetera, because to do anything about it would be the real problem. No, no, that's a that's a false dilemma. What I'm saying is that DEI departments is currently constructed and within corporations writ large have pursued uh, uh, policies like Mark Cuban basically admitted to of racial and sex based discrimination, which is illegal under Title seven is an actionable claim under under labor law, labor law to say that they can, corporation can do nothing, for example, to make sure that they're recruiting from area, you know, recruiting from historically black colleges or, or something like that, where they make sure that applicants are coming from diverse areas. That's perfectly legal. There's and no one's claiming that they can't do that. What I'm saying and, and what Andrea Lucas of the EEOC is saying is that programs that that intend and do use race or sex as a motivating factor in promotion and hiring are illegal. And I would say go further than that. They are bad for both the company and for consumers because they take the, the company's focus off of serving their consumers. That's why companies exist, so we can have things. It's not to engage in race and sex-based quotas uh, 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 and, and programs. Well, one of the reasons that DEI has gotten uh, more scrutiny, I think, in recent years is not just for the hiring um, aspect, you know, something affirmative action, something we've been debating for decades in this country, uh, but the training material, DEI training materials, oftentimes related to schools and other areas of employment, but also in corporations, have been leaked. There's more been broader public attention to them and a lot of dissatisfaction with the kind of concepts they introduced. Many of them, I would argue, and others have argued, are themselves um, racist and, in fact, in violation of the whole spirit of, of the enterprise. Can you comment on that? Well, and this is another area that I think is ripe to be litigated and is being litigated currently, which is uh, along with, along with uh, a ban on race and sex being a qualifying factor and uh, uh, influencing factor in, in promotion and hiring, you also can't create an environment where people feel a hostile workplace environment where, where they're attacked for the color of their skin or their, or their sex. And that's exactly what a lot of these bias trainings have, have basically turned into. Uh, people like Robin D'Angelo, who've, who've run this scam of, of these anti-white bias trainings and anti-Asian and anti-Jewish bias trainings, uh, basically have been helping corporations violate that portion of labor law. And now they are increasingly starting to be sued over, over those. And I think you're going to continue to see that until that practice is put to an end. But as you noted, it's not just uh, race and sex-based hiring and promotion. It's also, uh, you know, you cannot be creating a hostile work environment uh, attack, attacking people for their race. Will Hill, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The latest update out of Israel shows mass destruction and ruin in the Gaza Strip.
The Guardian published an interactive map of the Strip detailing all of the damaged and bombed buildings. Each of the segments in red here shows a building bombed since the initial October 7th attack on Israel. Meanwhile, new reporting from Haaretz claims that the IDF has burned down, quote, hundreds of houses in Gaza under direct orders from their commanders. From the outlet, Israel, uh, Israeli soldiers have begun in recent weeks to set fire to homes without the necessary legal permission to do so. Soldiers have destroyed several hundred buildings using this method over the past month. After the structure is set on fire along with everything inside, it is allowed to burn out until it is rendered useless. In other updates, Israeli intelligence has released new information about its claims relating to UNRWA. Sky News reports that Israel is now claiming four employees, not 12, were connected with the Hamas terrorist network's actions on October 7th. As one pundit put it, on what basis did the U.S. and U.K. governments come to this conclusion that warranted collective punishment by defunding UNRWA? The Israelis can't even get their story straight. Uh, Sky News recently conducted an interview with IDF reservist Shari Mendez, who claimed that she and her team did in fact see firsthand evidence of systemic genital mutilation of women. Let's take a look. The women that were coming through, some of the women that, that were coming in, what were you seeing? There, they were shot so many times in the head that, that in, many, in many cases it was like there was um, a, a purposeful obliteration of women's faces. We also saw uh, women came in not very dressed, and they had often very bloody clothing, bloody, if they had any clothing, they had very bloody underwear. Women were shot. Our team has seen women shot in the crotch, in the uh, genitals. Women were shot in the breast. Um, you were seeing, you saw this. Our team saw this, yes, yes. As a result of the violence happening in the region, the U.N. put out a statement saying there's no justification for killing or kidnapping civilians using sexual violence or launching rockets towards civilian targets. But at the same time, nothing can justify the collective punishment of the people in Gaza. To which our next guest responded, after condemning rape and mutilation, there shouldn't be any but. Fix that for you. Joining us now is founder of the Tel Aviv Institute, Hen Mazig. Hen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So what is your perspective on this report? Let's start with UNRWA. Um, the, the funding of this organization has been paused by the U.S. and other uh, Western um, countries. Uh, are we to trust in the reporting from uh, Israeli in intelligence that these individuals, uh, or more of them, according to The Wall Street Journal, were involved with Hamas? Yeah, absolutely. I know it from firsthand experience uh, serving as a humanitarian officer and liaison to UNRWA and other United Nations organizations in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip. And I've seen the corruption and the uh, link, uh, direct link between those organizations and uh, local uh, terror groups, as uh, the Wall Street Journal um, actually uh, identified that uh, over 10 percent of uh, UNRWA employees uh, were involved um, with Hamas or have some links to the, Isra uh, to the um, Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Uh, for me, one person from a humanitarian organization being linked to a terror group is enough to, um, to create a real uh, outcry around the world. And I think hearing buts and ifs uh, in regards to this is uh, really disconcerting. I get into this in more detail on my radar, but the Wall Street Journal alleges that there are, quote, connections with 10 percent of UNRWA uh, workers. And when it went on to describe the connections, it alluded to things like 50 percent of UNRWA staff members having a 
close family member, a family member who they say have connections, which is pretty attenuated. Do you think that's sufficient basis to uh, cut aid by about 60 percent to an organization on which two million people in the Gaza Strip rely on for food, uh, medical supplies, et cetera, as they're going through what has been described by many actors in the international community as genocide conditions? So there was a lot of mis, uh, um, mischaracterization of this act, which you just alluded to. So first of all, the, the, the funding is not being cut. Um, just funding that was promised for this year is going to be suspended and they're going to investigate it. There are many ways to give funding uh, to the Palestinians in Gaza. And in fact, when $1.17 billion in one year in 2022 was given to the Palestinians in Gaza and to see the amount of uh, terror tunnels and uh, rockets and guns and uh, ammunition that was being collected by Hamas. It's really, really uh, scary to think that this money that should have gone to Palestinian civilians instead went to uh, other places. Instead of building more hospitals, building more tech industry for the Palestinians in Gaza, pro providing some promise of a future. And that's the problem with UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Work Agency for the Palestinian Refugees, was created with that in mind, to keep the Palestinian refugees, to perpetuate their status, and to never give them hope of a better future. And I want a better future for the Palestinians. Ultimately, isn't the goal for Palestinians who are being facilitated or, or taken care of by UNRWA to have a right of return? Aren't they refugees, the largely Gaza Strip residents, refugees that were uh, chased out of their homes during the Nakba uh, 75 years ago, and who ultimately isn't the, the fundamental issue whether or not they will be allowed to have the right of return and have the same rights and privileges uh, as Jewish citizens living in the area? Yeah, that's a good point. And I can tell you from personal experience, my grandparents from my mother's side came to Israel from Iraq. My grandparents from my father's side came to Israel from Tunisia. Together with almost a million Jewish refugees that were forced out from the Middle East and North Africa between the years of 1941 to 1972, uh, they all found refuge in Israel, and that's where they were settled. They received citizenship and continued with their lives. My family does not want to go back to Iraq. We're not advocating to get our land back in Tunisia. We were focusing on the future and improving our lives and making sure that whatever land we have now, this is the land that we're going to make a future for ourselves. And we actually came back to our homeland. The only place where Palestinian refugees were actually settled was inside Israel. Today, they're making 20% of Israeli population, over 2 million Palestinians, Israeli Arabs, that receive citizenship. Throughout the Middle East, that's what UNRWA has done. They perpetrated their status as refugees. In Lebanon, Palestinians are being treated under an apartheid regime in Lebanon. Lebanon, where they can't go to the same schools as Lebanese, they don't have citizenship. The same thing in Jordan, throughout the Middle East, Palestinians are being held hostage by those countries because they are being remaining in this status of refugees. Instead of keeping them, and I think it's the most heartless thing we can do to Palestinians, is to keep this hope that one day they will come back to Israel and my family and, and 7 million Jews will just be wiped out or go back to where we came from. We can't go back to Iraq. We can't go back to Tunisia. We're staying there. And the Palestinians are going to stay there as well. We have to find a way that will not be relying on some crazy fantasies that, that Israel will cease to exist. It won't cease to exist. Palestinians are not going anywhere. We have to find a solution for a future for Palestinians. I think the argument is not that Israel has to cease to exist, but that it can stop being an apartheid state, which privileges 
uh, Jewish uh, residents in Israel over those of other religious or ethnic heritages. Specifically, Biden has been so moved by the abuses against Palestinians in occupied uh, territories in the West Bank that he just is expected to issue an executive order shortly addressing that Israeli settlers have been targeting and murdering hundreds of Palestinians in the West Bank, where there is no Hamas, since the events of October 7th. Moreover, obviously, as you're well aware, uh, Amnesty International and a number of humanitarian organizations have characterized Israel as an apartheid state, specifically because of the disparate treatment of Palestinians in uh, Israel. Interfaith marriages are illegal, as you know, in Israel. There are um, roads and streets that Palestinians cannot run down, walk down, that uh, Jewish Israeli citizens are allowed to walk down. Employment opportunities differ wildly based on your religious background, etc. So you characterize the right of return as a fantasy, but isn't that a consequence of the policy positions of uh, Israeli leadership who have chosen to deny Palestinians the right of return? Again, your argument is riddled with misinformation and false accusations about Israel. I mean, there's no roads that are separated to Jews and, and Israelis or Jews and Arabs within Israel. I don't know where you come up with that to say that Hamas does not exist in the West Bank. We know clearly that there are Hamas cells that have been stopped in the West Bank. In Janine, just a few days ago, uh, three Hamas activists were uh, were arrested. The, the Hamas uh, um, um, terrorists that have been uh, in Israeli prison, war released back to the West Bank in the in the recent uh, hostages for for prisoners exchange. And to claim that Israel is an apartheid state does such grave injustice to people that went through apartheid. If you think about the fact that 20% of Israeli population are Israeli Arabs, we have Arab Supreme Court, ju court judges, we have Arabs in the Israeli Parliament, we have Arab doctors. Arabs are part of the Israeli society and they have equal rights. I mean, there's Israeli Arabs serving in the Israeli army right now in. Gaza, do you want to argue that they are living un under some sort of different set of rules? Those IDF soldiers that are Arab Muslims, is that, I mean, it's just really bizarre argument to make. Well, it's it's true. In fact, I I, ha I don't know if they can throw this up. There are any numeral any number of articles and reports you can obviously read about the uh, different roads that Palestinians and Israelis uh, uh, have available to them. Both segregated a new segregated highway that was just built, I think, in 2019, and also paths and checkpoints that. Uh, Arabs are forced to go through uh, the system that Arabs who live in uh, the occupied territories in the West Bank and Gaza uh, have to spend sometimes hours extra getting to their jobs in Israel because of the differential treatment that they have to experience that are justified on the basis of security concerns. All of this is well documented and we don't need to dispute it now. But I am interested in hearing you as we close here uh, articulate what you think the vision of the future should be. Should uh, how was this, how should this conflict be resolved, uh, is the expectation that Palestinians who live in these occupied conditions in, uh, in Gaza, who have now had um, an, an enormous percentage of housing destroyed, uh, uh, cemeteries desecrated, over 16 cemeteries des desecrated, uh, every uh, uh, college, university in Gaza Strip destroyed, is the expectation that they should just move on and stay in Gaza. They, sh they, sh they should be permanently relocated from the Gaza Strip, as so many people articulated was the goal at the Settlers' Conference in Jerusalem over the weekend. Or should there be some two-state solution or right of return? What do you see as the end to this conflict? 
I think that if, before we even speak about the end of the conflict, we need to be uh, honest and truthful and not speak about uh, buzzwords and things that are just not factual and, and just making an argument that is emotional one that is meant to make people be angry or upset rather than trying to solve issues. And I think that at the end of the day, if we are looking at Israelis and Palestinians and we're looking at the trauma of women that have been raped and other women around the world told them that actually maybe we shouldn't believe them. Maybe we shouldn't believe all women that have been raped and mutilated. And we need to just silence them. I think this is part of the biggest issue that we have, that people can't see Israelis as human and other people can't see Palestinians as human. And as long as we are being used as pawns by international voices that care nothing about our lives and all they care about is to make some cheap political points, this conflict will continue. The way to move forward is for Israelis and Palestinians to see each other as human. And that's what we're doing. And, and I see a lot of hope and promise with young generation of Israelis and Palestinians that are fighting for peace and doing the brave thing and ignoring voices from the West that are telling us that we need to keep on hating each other rather than finding ways to, to live together and oppose Hamas, oppose terrorism, oppose sexual and gender violence against Israeli women uh, and try and heal from that. But it will take a long time, definitely. With all due respect, I'm sorry, can you just answer, be responsive to the question about uh, Palestinian concerns about their substantive rights? I don't think that that is a Western argument. This is a very organic argument in a fight that Palestinians have been engaged with for 75 years. What should be done to address their substantive concerns about being treated equally in Palestine, arguments for either their own state or for full treatment under the law in Israel and the right to return? Do you have any thoughts about how to resolve those fundamental claims that are driving this conflict? I think that if you ask Israeli members of parliament, Arab Israeli members of parliament, pal Palestinians, they would tell you that they, actually yesterday there was an argument in the Israeli parliament where an Israeli Palestinian Arab, an Arab Palestinian member of the parliament, argued that Palestine would be created and he believes that it, it will be uh, a country that lives side by side with, uh, with Israelis. If you ask Israeli Arab Supreme Court judge, a Palestinian Israeli Supreme Court judge, he would tell you that he also thinks that, is, that Israel would live side by side with Palestinians. I think there are many genuine voices that want to reach peace, but we have to really look at what happened on October 7th. We have to look at the trauma that Hamas inflicted on Israeli girls that they raped. We have to look at the mutilation. We have to look at the violence that was never seen in Israel and really recognize that we haven't had a chance to grieve. And instead of grieving, we had voices from the West telling us that this didn't happen. Maybe we shouldn't believe all women uh, uh, that are victims of rape. And I think that's really the, the core of the issue here. We weren't able to heal because of voices that want us to keep fighting. Um, I believe in peace. I'm going to continue fighting for it. Just for the record, an Israeli member of parliament um, was, uh, they're voting, parliament, Israeli parliament is voting to expel a lawmaker specifically because he articulated support for the genocide case. That is the condition that people who are supporting or even articulating Jewish. any interest in humanitarian concerns of Palestinian are experiencing in the Knesset right now. We appreciate you joining us and offering your perspective. Please feel, feel free to have the last word if you'd like. Yeah, sure. It was a Jewish Knesset member. There was a Palestinian Arab yes. member of the Knesset that actually argued for a Palestinian state. And the Jewish one was actually removed from the Knesset. So that's the sort of democracy that we have in Israel. For, for advocating for humanitarian rights of Palestinians. It's, it's unfortunately... Yeah, I think that's what he said. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's unfortunate that so many um, Jewish advocates for humanitarian uh, interests of Palestine have been accused of anti-Semitism and suffered very similar treatment as Arab Americans in this context. But we appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much.
That does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll be leaving you in the capable hands of our Friday co-hosts, Amber Duke and Jessica Burbank. Please tune in. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, feel free to find us wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.